The 2007 ASH meeting was a landmark in management of multiple myeloma with a number of critical phase 3 studies reported in upfront treatment. I met with Dr. Sagar Loniel to chat about ASH 2008, and to begin, he provided an overview of what was presented in myeloma. I think of three big categories of abstracts this year, and I think the first big category is new two, three, or four drug combinations. The second category is the large randomized phase three trials that tested last year's really exciting two and three drug combinations. And then the third category that I think is important is the new approaches in relapsed refractory disease. So I can probably pick one or two from each of those three categories that I think is really exciting. I think if you look at the new three or four drug combinations, I still believe that the RVD data presented by Paul Richardson is extremely exciting. I think that Shaji Kumar's addition of cyclophosphamide is intriguing, although I'm not yet convinced that that's the absolute best approach to take. I think it's certainly a very interesting approach, adding in cyclophosphamide to the RVD approach in the newly diagnosed setting. I think in the large randomized phase three data, there are really two pieces of information that I find most intriguing. The first is that both the bortezomib dex from Herso and the VTD from Michele Cavo both show improvement in progression-free survival post-transplant. And this is really the first time that's ever been demonstrated. Not just responses now, but PFS has actually improved. And I think the other large phase three trials that were done were done in Italy and Spain in non-transplant eligible patients that suggested that perhaps lower doses of bortezomib in combination with MP may have less neuropathy than we saw in the VISTA trial that was presented. And then in the relapsed refractory combination, I think that the very early data on pomalidomide is certainly very, very encouraging as an alternative approach for lenalidomide-resistant patients, as well as some of the data looking at carfilzomab as a second-generation proteasome inhibitor, and then the bortezomib combinations that were presented as well. Okay, well, let's go through all those. And the first one you mentioned, I thought was one of the most interesting presentations from last year's ASH in 2007 which was Paul Richardson's RVD study, and he updated that again at ASH. Can you talk about that? Yeah, this is a trial really based on some data looking at RVD in the relapsed refractory setting, then extrapolating that data with a second phase one dose escalation that showed you could give full-dose bortezomib with full-dose lenalidomide. And actually, the one drug that was modified was DEX. We reduced the DEX to 20 milligrams instead of 40. And we've seen the data before. The data continues to hold up very, very nicely with, at the maximum planned dose, 100% overall response rate, 76% very good partial remission or better, which again is on par with or superior to any transplant study that we've seen in the post-transplant setting. I think the other piece that was nice about that is that Paul presented some of the data on potential high-risk subsets of patients and that the response rate, as one would expect with bortezomib and or lenalidomide in the mix, clearly were very good for the high-risk subsets of patients as well. I think there was no issue with stem cell collection, and I think we're really looking at PFS and OS as secondary endpoints in this trial, and it's going to take a little bit longer to get that data. Any new pieces of information from this study that caught your eye? Well, I think there was the addition of the cytogenetic data, that patients with 414 or other high-risk features actually seem to gain great benefit from this combination in terms of response and response duration. The N is really too small to be able to interpret that data. But I think the bottom line from people across the country who either like the data with three drug combinations or who believe we should stagger drugs, the reality is that two large randomized phase three cooperative group trials 
are now testing RVD versus RD in one setting or versus VD in another setting, and that this is something we should really nationally really try and answer a good question. And what are you yourself doing outside of protocol setting right now in the upfront setting? I know the last time we talked, you were using RVD. Yes, yeah, we continue to use RVD, and when we don't have a trial that's available for a patient, we give four cycles and then collect stem cells and then base our next step on response following those four cycles of induction therapy. Okay, what's the next paper you'd like to talk about? I think the next one was Shaji Kumar's addition of cyclophosphamide to RVD. And I think this is really based on some very nice preclinical data, again, suggesting that lenalidomide and cyclophosphamide, as well as cyclophosphamide and bortezomib, are synergistic when you put them together. This is a data, you know, when your response rate for RVD is 100%, it's hard to necessarily make that better. But what I think that Dr. Kumar showed very nicely was that he achieved almost 20% stringent CR. And you'll recall by the new response criteria, stringent CR requires not just absence of the protein by IFIX, but also a normalized free light ratio. And that's not something that we tested prospectively in the RVD regimen. So I think seeing a, a, an almost 40% CR with 20% stringent CR is very, very encouraging data. And I think questions about stem cell mobilization are still outstanding. Now, this is the so-called evolution study. Correct. And what about toxicity with adding in the psychophosphamide? Well, I think, you know, it's interesting because if you contrast this study with the previous study that Dr. Kumar had presented in the same session, which was cyclophosphamide plus Lendex, it seemed like the heme toxicity was a lot less in this combination. And I think that may have been because we used a little bit lower dose of lenalidomide. We went with 15, and we went with the two-week schedule on with one week off as opposed to the continuous dosing of three weeks on with one week off, which is what he did with the RCD regimen. But in the phase one experience, he was able to get good doses of cyclophosphamide in without too much heme toxicity. So where do you think this regimen is going? There's a randomized phase two that's proposed looking at CRVD versus VTD versus VD that's being proposed. That's the second step of the evolution trial. I think really the question is what's the best partner for RVD? And is it cyclophosphamide? We actually have talked with a couple of groups about adding an HDAC inhibitor to RVD to see whether that might be the right partner. I think there's going to be some small phase two experience to get a sense for toxicities, response rate, stem cell collection issues, and then we're going to have to compare these head-to-head. What do we know about HDAC inhibitors and multiple myeloma? Well, there have been a couple of presentations. There were actually two at the meeting, one looking at LBH589, which appeared to induce maybe some stable disease. No clear-cut partial responses were seen in that single-agent trial, and it's now being combined with bortezomib and has actually shown very encouraging data in combination with bortezomib, which is where one would predict the best activity would be. Now, a little bit more data has been presented with varinostat and bortezomib, and this was actually presented in the relapse refractory setting, where almost a third of patients who were bortezomib-resistant responded to the combination of varinostat plus bortezomib. And remember, varinostat by itself had almost no activity at all. It was really stable disease, as published by Paul Richardson. So the preclinical rationale for putting these together really is borne out in clinical studies so far. Can you explain a little bit more about the preclinical rationale of those two agents? Yeah, absolutely. So the HDAC inhibitors do a lot of different things, and some of them are more broadly HDAC, some of them are more broadly protein deacetylase inhibitors. But one of the mechanisms that was identified by the group at Dana-Farber was that HDAC inhibitors as a class appear to inhibit HDAC6 
and by inhibiting HDAC6, you actually may inhibit agrosome formation. And agrosome is the secondary pathway for protein catabolism. So when you hit a cell with a proteasome inhibitor, which is the primary pathway, that secondary pathway gets activated as the now primary system. And by blocking both proteasome and agrosome, you actually result in synergistic in vitro cell death, in vivo cell death in animals. And this is what we're trying to test in patients as well now. Now, is the agrosome sort of similar to the proteasome? The agrosome is, it's a little different. It's what's used in the autophagy pathway for cell death or protein catabolism. It's sort of the pathway of last resort. If the proteasome is not available, then the agrosome is what you'll try and go to. And you mentioned the other paper by Kumar looking at lenalidomide, cyclophosphamide, and DEX. Anything else you want to say about that? Yeah, I think that's an important study because I think it shows us the value of doing phase one, phase two trials early on. I think what Shajid learned from that trial was that 300 milligrams per meter squared of cyclophosphamide with standard lenalidomide was probably too much. And so he enrolled a second cohort of patients using just a flat dose of 300, was able to get the drug in without significant heme toxicity once he did that, but did have some issues with stem cell mobilization, at least with growth factor mobilization alone. We now know that with AMD 3100 being FDA approved, this will hopefully be less of an issue. But I think it is an important matter just to keep in the back of our minds. This regimen of cyclophosphamide and RVD, do you think that it's something that should be considered outside a protocol setting? No, I wouldn't yet. I think we need a lot more data. You know, the numbers of patients presented was a pretty small number. I think we need to see that randomized phase two data that's planned as part of the evolution trial to really get a sense for how this plays in multiple centers around the country before we adopt it. Before we go into other papers, can you just comment on how all these exciting data in the upfront setting have affected your approach to transplant? That's a good question, and that's a very controversial point right now. I think that one of the big questions in the myeloma community now is, is CR enough? And I think that universally the answer is probably not the way we've defined it now that we know that patients will relapse, that we know that patients with high-risk disease especially are at high risk for recurrence. But I think that the tools that we have now don't allow us to necessarily differentiate between a transplant-based CR versus a novel agent induction-based CR. And so part of what we're planning to do in our next set of trials, and the evolution trial is actually doing this now, is looking at flow-based CRs, which we know get us to two logs lower in terms of minimal residual disease, as well as PCR-based CR. And I think in many ways we're moving towards a model similar to what CLL has set up. We know that if you give chlorambicil and prednisone or chlorambicil, whatever you want to choose, you may get good responses, but you still have a lot of residual disease. And that part of what we're trying to do is get to that molecular CR at one point. And if a transplant can help us to get there, that's great. I don't know that a transplant can help us to get there. And I think that's really the question. So at this point, how are you proceeding outside of protocol setting in terms of transplant? Yeah, what we've been doing is trying to get patients to a CR with their induction. And if they get there after four cycles of therapy, we'll collect their cells, give them an additional four cycles so that we mimic what was in Paul Richardson's protocol, and then put them on maintenance, knowing that we can always transplant them in first relapse. And what that requires is very close monitoring of patients even when they're on the maintenance setting, meaning that you look at their numbers every month, and at the first signs that numbers are ticking up again, you can immediately take them to high-dose therapy. You don't need to re-salvage them. That's the part that's a little bit complicated because you really do have to pay close attention. 
What's your experience been in terms of collection of stem cells in patients in this situation? Early on, I can tell you that on the RVD protocol with Paul, as well as in our own experience, there's been nobody that we haven't been able to collect. Sometimes the protocol won't let us use either cyclophosphamide or AMD 3100 after four cycles, and we've treated for an additional four and then done that after eight. But we've not had, I can't think of a patient we've not been able to collect. What other papers at ASH would you like to talk about? I think that in aggregate, there were a number of abstracts in the non-transplant eligible patient population presented by Dr. Mateos, as well as Dr. Rossignol and Dr. Palumbo, which were variations on the concept of an MPV-type regimen with different drugs added in, depending upon which one you were looking at. And I think the bottom line, at least in aggregate from those three trials that I mentioned, is that using perhaps weekly dosing of bortezomib in combination with MP plus another drug or MP really seemed to reduce the incidence of grade 3 peripheral neuropathy quite impressively to the point that I think it's certainly reasonable to start patients at the VISTA dosing, you know, the twice a week for three cycles. But if you see signs of neuropathy in this older patient population, you can reduce to weekly and not feel like you're giving them suboptimal therapy. Let's talk a little bit about each one of those studies. Why don't we begin with Dr. Mateos's paper? This was a trial that really looked at VMP versus VTP. And the primary question in this trial was, what's the better partner for bortezomib? Is it an alkylator or is it an immunomodulatory agent? And I think in terms of responses, it looked like VMP was actually slightly superior to VTP. And again, with the weekly dosing of bortezomib, the incidence of severe neuropathy was 2% or less which when you remember from the VISTA trial, it was 13%. So I think, you know, the bottom line in my mind is that if you're treating an older patient who you've deemed not eligible for high-dose therapy, that the VMP approach is probably the best alternative we have, either VMP or MPT, a melphalan-based approach, is superior, and that using lower-dose bortezomib may let you get away with less morbidity. What was the second paper? The second paper was the Palumbo paper, which was VMPT versus VMP, also in elderly patients. And again, I think that the bottom line from this was that in the group that received weekly bortezomib, there was a lot less peripheral neuropathy in both arms. I think that the VMPT arm overall appeared to be superior in terms of response rate. PFS and two-year PFS was too close to know the difference between those arms as yet. But certainly VM4 drugs seem superior to three drugs, but that you're going to have to modify the schedule of the bortezomib to really significantly minimize the risk of peripheral neuropathy. And what was the third paper? It was the Rossignol paper. So this was TD versus BTD versus VBMCP VBAD Velcade. This was for transplant-eligible patients looking at Thaldex versus VTD versus this Spanish VBMCP, VBAD, Velcade combination. And I think the bottom line here, again, is that VTD was superior, it was better tolerated, and it had a higher response rate overall. It was good data. How do you approach non-transplant-eligible patients right now outside of protocol setting? From my perspective, it's really one of two choices. It's either MPT or MPV. And I think that if patients have any high-risk features at all, MPV is my treatment of choice. If it's a standard risk or a low-risk patient, then I think it comes down to, does the patient want to come into the office and get the infusions? What's the copay for thalidomide? You know, all those kinds of patient-specific decisions that go into it. I think all things being equal, 
I'm very impressed by the CR rate, overall response rate associated with MPV, and that is almost my default unless there's a reason why a patient would rather take completely oral therapy. What other papers would you like to talk about? There are a couple of additional abstracts, I think, that were presented at the meeting that show some very interesting phase two data, but data that I think is starting to really begin to hit home as we start to identify very high response rates for a lot of our induction regimens. And one of these is data from Memorial Sloan Kettering, where they're looking at sequential administration of bortezomib and liposomal doxorubicin and dex, followed by thalidomide and dexamethasone. And this is almost sort of a concept of a hyper-CVAD type approach to myeloma therapy, where you give alternating cycles of therapy or sequential, not necessarily giving the same agents over and over again, in an effort to try and hit the tumor in a different way. And what they did in this trial for Memorial was really try and identify patients with high-risk disease, predominantly ISS stage 2 and 3, so with high beta-2s, and there were a subset of patients with stage 1 disease but had soft tissue masses or extramedullary disease. And we are now starting to identify that in the relapse setting, patients with extramedullary disease have a very high risk of progression or relapse and a sort of extramedullary escape, and that this may be a subset of patients that while they manifest with a normal beta-2, actually biologically may act a little bit differently. So in this trial, what they did was look at this overall response rate for these subsets of patients. These were, again, all newly diagnosed. There were 28 patients that were valuable in this trial. And I think what's very encouraging is that the CR near CR rate, again, is about 40 to 45%, somewhere in that ballpark there, with a very good partial remissions over 60% in this sort of sequential approach for high-risk subsets of patients. And again, small phase two data, but data that I think is certainly worthy of setting in larger phase three settings. It's also interesting sort of conceptually. In a way, it kind of reminds me of what happens a lot in breast cancer, where you get one regimen, say, with an anthracycline and a second regimen following it up, say, with a taxane. To what extent has this overall strategy been looked at before in myeloma? Well, I guess you could argue that total therapy is probably the best paradigm for this, this concept of a couple cycles of one thing, then two cycles of transplant, and then alternating maintenance therapy. I think that's probably the best paradigm with the most data. But Sundar Jagannath has actually looked at data with bortezomib and dexamethasone and then VTD alternating cycles or two cycles of one, two cycles of another. I think it's a very interesting concept and a way to try and get multiple drugs in together without necessarily compounding toxicity so that you don't have to modify the doses or reduce the doses. You can get full doses of whatever drug you want. You're just doing it sequentially as opposed to concurrently. Well, the other thing that's kind of interesting is it seems like in a lot of these triple regimens like RVD that you do get a pretty, you know, in terms of the two key targets, the IMID as well mm-hmm. as bortezomib, that you are able to, I think, combine them pretty well. Is that yeah. in terms of toxicity? But now you're bringing in liposoma doxorubicin. Where do you think, you know, that's sort of going to fit in in terms of the first-line setting as we move forward? Well, that's a good question. There is a trial being done through the Multiple Myeloma Research Consortium where we've taken RVD and added doxel to it. And we are now at full doses of all the drugs in that combination. So it's RVDD. And again, the goal in that trial is not just overall response rate, because we know the overall response rate with RVD is quite high, but it's looking at CR and VGPR rate and trying to double that essentially by the addition of doxel. And I think that a lot of that data, the RVD plus doxel, is predicated on Andres Jakubowiak's data, where he looked at VDD. 
Velcade with doxel and dexamethasone. This, again, was a small phase two trial where he showed very impressive response rates for this upfront regimen. And at the most recent ASH meeting, Andres actually compared VDD with TD in a non-randomized fashion, but just retrospectively looking at whether there were differences in post-transplant outcomes and differences in PFS between patients who got VDD as part of his study or thalidomide and dexamethasone as part of historical cohorts at his own institution. And what he showed nicely, similar to what has been shown by Cavo and now Harriso, is that the response rates are better for VDD up front compared to TD, and that actually in the post-transplant setting, response rates are superior as well for VDD compared to TD. And in fact, in his non-randomized comparison, PFS appears to be superior for VDD compared to TD as the induction when all patients went on to high-dose therapy and autologous transplant. Looking at the response rate to induction, 63% of patients in the VDD arm achieved a VGPR or better, which again puts it on par with RVD. Again, smaller patient numbers, but again, that very good response did translate to a better post-transplant response as well as a better improvement in PFS. So I think it's really becoming almost a foregone conclusion now that if you get a better response rate up front, that will translate to a better post-transplant response rate and thus hopefully improve progression-free survival. Now, have you yourself treated any patients with RVD slash doxel? Yeah, we've got a couple folks that are on the phase one portion of that trial, and the tolerance has actually been very good. We've seen very, very quick responses, and I think we're just now at the highest dose cohort for the doxel, so we'll have to see how that pans out in terms of efficacy. I think I know how you're going to answer this. So just for the record, any role for RVD doxel outside a protocol setting? You know, I would be cautious about that right now. Again, just because I think it's such a new regimen, I think we need to understand the toxicities and get a handle on it. You know, RVD, I think, is relatively straightforward, but there are still some subtleties to managing it. You know, we've treated probably 60 or 80 patients with it. I would say I'd be cautious with RVDD until we really see the data. Any specific concerns in terms of toxicity? No, I think cytopenias obviously are an issue, giving an anthracycline in conjunction with an imid, as is DVT. And we know from the thalidomide era, DVTs are higher in imids plus an anthracycline. So I think we just need to make sure we have the right prophylaxis. Let's talk about the paper by Kapoor, Abstract 95, looking at survival in patients with newly diagnosed myeloma treated with lenalidomide and dexamethasone in terms of cytogenetic status. Yeah, this is actually a very interesting, and I think it's an important abstract. And the reason I think it's an important abstract is, in many ways, we may have gotten a little carried away with the efficacy of our new agents. And this is, I think, an important perspective to look at. And what the group at the Mayo Clinic did was look at 100 patients who got lenalidomide and dexamethasone, and then using their criteria for categorization of high risk, high plasma cell labeling index, elevated beta-2, or abnormalities in the fish, such as 17P or 414 or 1416. And they identified 16% of patients that were high risk out of that total 100. So really, that translates into 16 patients. But what they showed, I think, in their analysis was that the progression-free survival for patients in that high-risk subset of patients was almost half what you'd expect for the standard-risk patients that the median progression-free survival was only about 18 months compared to about 31 or 32 months in the standard risk subset of patients. And that's certainly a very alarming finding. I think what it suggests to me is that for high-risk patients, 
depending, again, no matter how you define it, high-risk patients are still a challenge for us. And that while lenalidomide or bortezomib may be superior to what we historically had seen with those patients, we're still not out of the fire yet. We still have a lot of work to do, likely combining agents, probably talking about this sequential approach as we saw from Dr. Comenzo or from Dr. Benzinger or other groups. That might be an approach, as well as raising the importance of maintenance therapy. And the reason I bring that up is that I think at the same meeting, Dr. Barlogi and his colleagues presented Total Therapy 3, showed all the data with lots and lots of different curves and lots of good outcomes. But to me, the one striking feature from that presentation was the high-risk patients, where in Total Therapy 3, the high-risk patients actually did better than they had historically with median survivals or PFSs of about two and a half to three years, which is double what he'd seen with Total Therapy 2. Why is that? because he incorporated a novel agent like bortezomib as part of the maintenance. And to me, that's really the take-home message for high risk, that you can't just treat with a single drug and be done. You're likely going to need to combine and talk about sustained maintenance therapy for these patients. Okay, and the final one I want to ask you about is 868 by Palumbo et al., looking at RMPT. Yeah, this is actually a very interesting combination, and Dr. Palumbo has made a name for himself combining drugs with melphalan and prednisone and done it very, very well as part of the Italian myeloma group. He has published on MPT and MPR. He then looked at trying to enhance the efficacy of MPT by adding in bortezomib and published a paper with VMPT about a year or so ago in blood showing a very high response rate. But neuropathy was an issue in that trial. And so one of the things that they tried to do was to replace the V with R and see whether RMPT would be effective. And the reason I think this is such an interesting concept is that we think of IMIDs as a single class. If you've got THAL, you've got REV, and it doesn't really matter if you put them together. And there is some very interesting emerging preclinical data suggesting that these drugs do potentially act complementarily and that you can combine thalidomide with lenalidomide and perhaps get some of the synergy that we see when you combine a proteasome inhibitor with an imid. And so what he did was look at 44 patients with two doses of thalidomide, either 50 or 100 milligrams of thalidomide, and treated them with standard MP and gave lenalidomide at 10 milligrams. So the thalidomide was really the big difference between these trials, either 50 or 100 among the 44 patients. And I think what's interesting is that if you look at the trial as a whole, the VGPR rate was about 33%, not appreciably different than what you saw with VMPT. But interestingly, if you look at the 100 milligram thalidomide cohort, the higher dose, the VGPR rate was actually better. It was improved over potentially even VMPT. Progression-free survival was hard to compare because it is such a small trial with VMPT, but certainly the neuropathy appeared to be less with this RMPT regimen, suggesting, and I think the Italians are going to look at this in a randomized trial, RMPT versus VMPT, to see which one of those is superior in terms of efficacy as well as toxicity. I think if we go to the transplant trials, the two that I think are probably worth talking about are the CAVO data as well as the HERISO update. And the HERISO update you may not even have because it was not actually in the program. It was not presented as an abstract that was reviewed. Dr. Harriso actually presented an update of the IFM 2005-01 study as part of the ASH-ASCO joint symposium. And in that presentation, he updated the trial, which looked at VELCADEX versus VAD. Previously, he'd presented this data and showed that the response rate was superior, that patients with high-risk disease had a better response to VD than they did to VAD, 
and that the post-transplant response rate also favored the group that got bortezomib dex. Now, a question that had been raised about this trial was that if you failed to achieve a VGPR, you had a second cycle of high-dose therapy in this trial, and that more patients in the VAD arm had a second cycle of high-dose therapy compared to the VD arm, and would that equalize the differences in PFS? And it turns out from this data that that did not, in fact, occur, that even the patients that had one transplant and VD had a better progression-free survival than the group that had VAD and two transplants, again, suggesting that choice of induction therapy does make a difference. What about the CAVO paper? The CAVO paper is, I think, a little bit easier to follow, and I think it's because everybody got the same treatment. The only difference was the induction. And in the CAVO paper, people either got VTD, Velcade with Thaldex, or TD, thalidomide and dexamethasone alone. They then all got two transplants. And what McKelly has shown before is that the response before and the response after transplant was superior for VTD than it was for Thaldex. What he showed this time was that the progression-free survival favored the VTD arm, again showing us now, similar to what the French had demonstrated, that your choice of induction can influence duration of remission in the post-transplant setting as well. Let's talk a little bit about some of the papers that were presented in therapy in the relapse setting. I think that there were a number of encouraging combination as well as new drugs that were presented in the relapsed refractory setting. And the first of these drugs is carfilzomab, which is a second-generation proteasome inhibitor. It's a drug that we'd seen some phase one data on previously at last year's ASH. And there were two presentations, one in the relapsed setting and one in the refractory setting, for looking at single-agent carfilzomab in the setting of relapsed or refractory myeloma. Now, before we go into those two papers, can you talk a little bit more about this agent? Yeah, carfilzomab is a drug that hits the same target that bortezomib hits in the proteasome, the chymotryptic site. The difference is that carfilzomab does it in an irreversible form, whereas bortezomib is a reversible inhibitor of the proteasome. In terms of spectrum of activity on the other two metabolic sites within the proteasome, there really is no difference between bortezomib and carfilzomab. What's interesting is that the rules about duration of proteasome inhibition that we'd been taught with bortezomib, that you have to allow that 72-hour window between dosing, is in fact probably not correct, and that may be unique to bortezomib. With carfilzomib in this trial, in both these trials, the drug was given on day 1, 2, 8, 9, and 15, 16. So there was consecutive day dosing, which from the old teaching we would have thought was a bad thing. So the rules about proteasome inhibition and the duration and sustainability are probably not what we thought a few years ago. So can you talk a little bit about specifically what these two papers reported? Yeah, so there were two abstracts that were presented. Let's talk about the relapsed abstract first, which was the data presented by Dr. Vidge. And in the relapsed abstract, Dr. Vidge demonstrated about a 29% overall response rate. And in fact, if you look at patients who were bortezomib naive, the response rate was 53%. Again, suggesting that this is clearly an active agent and certainly from preliminary phase two assessment may be comparable, if not superior, to the activity that we saw with bortezomib in a similar relapse setting. What I think was also encouraging about this paper is that the toxicity was significantly different than what we have seen with bortezomib. The incidence of peripheral neuropathy was not really an issue. There was maybe a little bit of grade one peripheral neuropathy that was reported in this, but it was not nearly what we'd seen with bortezomib, at least in the previous experiences, both in refractory and in relapse disease. 
In the refractory trial that was presented by Sundar Jagannath, the responses were not quite as robust, and these were patients that were bortezomib-resistant essentially as well. It was, I think, a response rate of around 20% in that trial. But again, I think it's encouraging to note that there were not issues with neuropathy in this trial as well, and that there were a subset of patients with bortezomib-resistant disease whose disease could respond to the addition of a second-generation proteasome inhibitor. Another trial that I think was very interesting and exciting in the relapsed refractory setting was data from Donna Weber, which was a presentation of her phase one combined with phase one data from Ashraf Badros as well, looking at varinostat in combination with bortezomib. And as we discussed earlier, there is very interesting and exciting preclinical data that supports this combination. What they showed very nicely was that obviously you can get responses in this combination. They did have a very reasonable response rate. But more importantly than that, among patients who were bortezomib resistant, a third of them actually went on to achieve responses, some of which were PRs or very good partial remissions. Again, further validating some of that preclinical data that we'd seen before, suggesting that HDAX plus proteasome inhibitors are synergistic when they're put in combination. Another interesting and important abstract, I think, was one presented by Martha Lacey from the Mayo Clinic, and this was also another small phase two trial looking at pomalidomide, which is also known as CC4047, which is a third-generation immunomodulatory agent. This drug had been published previously by Matthew Streetley and the group in the UK a couple years ago in blood, but they had had some issues with toxicity. And one of the things that the Mayo Clinic trial did was try to use lower doses and perhaps, again, add a little bit less dexamethasone only if needed in this trial. The overall response rate was certainly very encouraging from this small phase two trial, but again, about a third of patients with lenalidomide-resistant disease responded to pomalidomide. And the toxicity profile appeared to be even less of an issue than we've seen with lenalidomide, that there was almost no neuropathy, the myelosuppression was much less of an issue than we see with lenalidomide, and overall patients seemed to tolerate the drug very, very well. So this, again, is another early encouraging drug that we hope to see further developed in myeloma. How about this paper on amyloidosis and bortezomib castritis? Another area of exploration with bortezomib is the concept of exploring not just plasma cell disorders like myeloma, but also looking at the amyloid patient population. There have been a number of small reports of patients looking at bortezomib in this patient population. There is some theoretical reasons to be concerned about using bortezomib in an amyloid patient population, and those would involve around the fact that inhibition of the proteasome may actually result in more amyloid production and potentially even more amyloid deposition, given that it's a protein deposition disorder. But there have been a number of small series that demonstrated nice responses, both clinically and by all amyloid-specific criteria, to the use of bortezomib in this setting. Dr. Castritas and his group from Greece as well as in Europe actually used bortezomib with or without dexamethasone and demonstrated about a 71% overall HR in that subset of population with about 25% of patients actually achieving a complete remission. I can tell you anecdotally we are part of a phase one trial using single-agent bortezomib with amyloid as well and have been very encouraged by A, the rapidity of response and the depth of response that we see using bortezomib in this specific setting. And this is not myeloma with secondary amyloid. This is AL amyloidosis where we've seen some of these findings. And as you know, this can be a very, very sick patient population. So to see these responses that are pretty well tolerated is very, very encouraging data. Why don't we talk a little bit about the issue of combination therapy in the relapse setting? Okay. So I think the real emerging point in a lot of different myeloma settings is really with all these active agents that we have, as well as multiple new agents in development, 
How do we combine drugs? How do we pick partners? How does a clinician make the decision about single agent versus combination in the relapsed or refractory setting? And I think that my answer to that is that I think you have to look at patient-specific issues. What has the patient seen before? What were their toxicities with the previous treatments that they've seen before? And remember that the advantage of combination is not just synergistic interaction between drug A and drug B, but it's also that you may reduce the incidence of toxicity because you may be able to either use less of one drug or the other, or the drugs may actually be compatible to the extent that you have less toxicity. And I think an example of that is the bortezomib HSP90 story. So when we did the phase one, phase two trial with tenisipamycin, the HSP90 inhibitor, in combination with bortezomib, we not only noticed that there appeared to be synergistic responses in patients that were bortezomib resistant, we also noticed that the incidence of neuropathy appeared to be less. That's with the same dose? Same dose, same dose, which again suggests that chaperoning proteins may have an important role in transport of ubiquitinated proteins that accumulate within the nerve sheath and that we think contributes to some of the peripheral neuropathy associated with bortezomib. We'd seen similar data in terms of neuropathy with a MAP kinase inhibitor from the company SIOS 469 when we combine that with bortezomib as well. So part of the rationale for combinations is not just efficacy, not just TTP or depth of response, but it may also be to try and put drugs together that may alleviate each other's side effects or toxicities and allow you to deliver therapy for a longer period of time. I think that the other questions that come up about single agents versus combination, because I'll often get the call, I'm going to use bortezomib in the relapse setting. Should I use bortezomib dex? Should I use bortezomib doxel? Should I use bortezomib thalidomide? And in my mind, I think it really is a matter of how quickly do you want to see a response, how much and how heavily pretreated a patient is that. If it's a very heavily pretreated patient, I'm almost never going to go in with a single agent unless... You know, the patient is so frail that if you look at them funny, they're going to fall apart. But I think that in the more advanced stages, you need combination therapy because single agents are not likely to really get you what you want in terms of responses and response duration. So can you talk a little bit more specifically about these three papers? Yeah. So the bortezomib tenisipamycin data was not one that was presented at this meeting, but it's being prepared for ASCO and has been presented at other meetings. This is where the overall response rate was over 50% for the combination of the heat shock protein 90 inhibitor with bortezomib. The two papers, I think, that were presented at this meeting that were very encouraging was the perifosine plus bortezomib data. And perifosine is an oral AKT inhibitor. This, again, was based on the concept that bortezomib upregulates AKT as part of the stress response, and that if you then come in and hit with an AKT inhibitor, you may be setting up cells to fail. And we know that perifosine with DEX as a single agent has a response rate of less than about 20%. In this trial, we treated in a phase one, phase two, over 50 patients, and the response rate for this combination in total was over 50% as well, again, suggesting additional benefit over the use of single-agent bortezomib. But even more encouraging is that there were a number of patients in this trial who were bortezomib-resistant coming in and achieved either PRs or very good partial remission, suggesting, again, validation of that preclinical work. This is now going to be explored in a randomized phase 3 trial comparing bortezomib dex versus bortezomib perifosine and dexamethasone. The other paper that was presented was a phase one, phase two, looking at the anti-IL-6 antibody, CNTO-328. And this was a trial that was based on some of Bob Orlowski's preclinical work, suggesting that inhibition of IL-6 
with the proteasome inhibitor actually results in synergistic myeloma cell death. The phase one, phase two demonstrated these drugs could be given very safely together. And again, the response rate for this combination is over 50% with major responses seen in the combination. This was a bortezomib-naive patient population, so you could argue that perhaps they were going to have at least a 40% response rate based on the APEX data. But to me, what's most encouraging about this trial is not just the response, but the TTP. And if you look at the TTP in this trial, it was nine months. And if you look at single-agent bortezomib, TTP is about six months. So this suggests that the magnitude of response is certainly improved, but that the time to progression is at least 50% better than we'd see with single-agent bortezomib. And this is also being tested in a randomized phase three trial as well. Let's talk a little bit about the Hovan study. The Dutch Hovan study, which looked at PAD versus VAD. And remember, PAD is PS341 plus adriamycin and dexamethasone, which is based on Jamie Cavanaugh's phase one, phase two data that was published a couple years ago. This was really another large European group trial to try and, I think, finally put the last nail in the VAD coffin. And I think what they showed in their first analysis is that response rates before and after high-dose therapy were superior for the group that received PAD compared to the group that received VAD, but it's still too early to have PFS data for that trial at this time point. But given the history of what we've seen with other trials, I suspect that PAD will again be the winner, not just in response rate, but also in progression-free survival. Anything that came out in terms of the issue of maintenance? There wasn't a lot else on maintenance. I think, though, the question is coming up, how do we do maintenance? And is it okay to just be happy with a CR and leave patients alone? And I think that that's a really hard question to answer because in many ways, I think that that depends on risk. If you have low-risk disease and you achieve a good response and you're ISS stage 1, your overall survival is 8 to 10 years. And in those patients, maintenance may mean less. On the other hand, if you have high-risk disease, ISS stage 3, 414, 17P deletion, those are patients we know we can get into a CR, but they don't stay in a CR. And that perhaps those are patients for whom maintenance may be optimal. And in fact, if you look at the Total Therapy 3 experience from Dr. Barlogi, those are the patients that he seems to really have positively impacted, the high-risk patients, by giving two years of VTD after high-dose therapy and autologous transplant, where their survival is still not comparable to stage 1 or stage 2, but it's superior to what we used to see for that high-risk subset of patients. How would you sort of put this ASH, 2008, compared to 2007 in terms of myeloma? It seemed like maybe not quite as much exciting stuff. Well, I think what we see in this meeting is a maturation of some of the data that we saw in 2007. I think we were all very excited by the CAVO data and the Harriso data last year. I think having PFS is really proof of principle, though. So in many ways, I think having this mature data is almost better than just seeing the response rates that we saw last year. I think we're also seeing now the Hovan data, which again confirms in a third trial that the addition to bortezomib as induction therapy is clearly superior to the old conventional approaches. There are still a lot of practitioners that I think use thalidomide and dexamethasone or DEX alone as their induction regimen. And I think we now have mounting evidence to say that that results in suboptimal overall responses and PFS after high-dose therapy. And so I think in many ways this is additional corroborative data to really make the point that the era of new agents has arrived.